Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Taking a little, little break from our study of the book of Romans, we just finished chapter 9 last week. And coming into now this uh, Christmas season, we're going to be considering the early verses of Philippians chapter 2 together over this holiday season. And we're going to be reading together this morning Philippians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. We're not going to be covering all of those this morning. This is what we'll be covering over the next three weeks, but want to give us this, this whole passage as we begin our study this morning. Philippians chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word, for this supernatural, inerrant gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit, through your word, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know you. We are transformed even from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that, that we who have been saved and caused to live also by that same Spirit, through that same Word, are transformed into the likeness of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that work which only you can do among us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your Word. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is that time of year where we celebrate the incarnation, the, the coming in human flesh of God the Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father Almighty giving the greatest gift that anyone could ever give and giving to sinful humanity the gift of his Son, the Lord of glory, born as a helpless baby, taking on the weakness and infirmity of humanity upon himself so that he could be truly, fully human, living as a man and, and accomplishing righteousness as a man in precisely the way that Adam had failed and precisely the way that we fail to live righteously before God. Christ did live righteously before God, did accomplish righteousness, did accomplish salvation, and the Father sent him not only to live as a man, but also to die as a man. 
And in his death to bear the full penalty of the wrath of God that was due to us because of our sin and to rescue us from the condemnation that we deserve. That is the meaning of Christmas. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That's why Christmas means something. That's why we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. And so the next three weeks, we'll be looking here at these verses we just read together from Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture of the incarnation of Christ and and the mystery of what we call the hypostatic union, which is just a fancy way of saying that Jesus, in his earthly life, in his incarnation, was truly, fully God and truly, fully God. Man, two distinct natures bound up in a single person. But what's interesting, even as as Philippians 2 presents this beautiful, one of the clearest pictures in all of Scripture of this great lofty theological truth, the interesting thing is that's not Paul's primary purpose in this passage. That lofty truth, that these fine points of of Christology that we see here in this passage are not the main point that Paul's making. He's telling us what he's telling us about Christ for a reason, and the reason is to illustrate something. It is to illustrate for us a call to humility. And so in in chapter 1, Paul had instructed the people of God, if you just look a couple verses up from where we are, starting in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So, so in other words, what Paul is saying here is to live a life worthy of the gospel, as he instructs us to do, let, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. To live in that kind of way chiefly involves being united with one another. Christians, how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, the first thing Paul points us to is being united together in the body of Christ. If we're to stand firm against the evil opposition of a hostile culture, and we must, we must do so, Paul says, in one spirit. If we're to strive together for the faith of the gospel, and we must, Paul says that we have to do that side by side. We have to do that with one mind. And chapter 2, then, is a continuation of this call for unity. It's a continuation of the same thought. And Paul's going to show us the key to experiencing this unity that we are called to is humility. It's putting our pride to death. And when Paul wants the perfect illustration of humility, when Paul wants the perfect illustration of what that looks like, he is going to point in verses 5 through 11 to the incarnation of Christ, to Christmas, to to Christ's taking on of human flesh. His, His incarnation, his taking on of human flesh is meant to have a visible impact on our lives as Christians. The incarnation of Christ is to make us a humble people. So the the call of Christmas is the call to humility. 
No, no one ever gets into the family of God in the first place without stooping in humility to acknowledge that they need saving. That's the only way anyone can be saved, is to have enough humility to recognize, I'm in need of this. I'm in need of saving. I can't do anything in my own to save myself. There's nothing in me that's deserving of salvation. There's nothing that I'm capable of that could ever earn this. My only hope is the grace of God given to me as a free gift because I don't deserve any of it. That's the only way anyone even comes into the family of God, is that humility. And that's an incredibly humbling thought, isn't it? sort of flies in the face of everything our culture tells us about how great and special we are and how much we all deserve a trophy. No, it's that humility in recognizing I'm not great, I'm not deserving of good things, and the only way I could ever get them is if God is incredibly gracious. We aren't the point of anything. God is the point of everything. That is a humbling thought. Why is it so important? Why is this humility so important? Why is putting pride to death so important? Well, it's because pride is really at the heart of all sin, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said it like this. I like this. Pride is the mother hen under which all other sins are hatched. It's true. Nothing is more profoundly devastating to a church than people who have a high view of themselves. People who are filled with pride and nothing is more encouraging than humility, than a humble people with servants' hearts. The great church father Augustine was asked once what the central principle is of the Christian life, and he said, well, there are three of them. Well, what are these three central principles of the Christian life? And Augustine said, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, Humility. We, we need to, though, understand right up front as we begin to talk about humility, we begin to look at Christ's humility next week, we need to understand what biblical humility is and what it is not. Because we might have a temptation to think what humility looks like is criticizing myself a lot, saying a lot of negative things about myself, thinking that, that I could never do anything fruitful or helpful to anyone, and I, I just think poorly and negatively about myself all the time. Well, that's not biblical humility. In fact, there is a word for that. It's called pride. That kind of thinking comes from pride, not from humility. In fact, it's often done for attention, isn't it? Oh, I'm no good. I'm worthless. I'm ugly. Nobody likes me. And what we're dying to hear from whoever it is in earshot is, oh, no. You have many wonderful talents. You're so attractive. You're such a great person. If only we could have more of you. Oh, it comes from pride. That's not biblical humility. True, true humility is this. Andrew Murray says, true humility isn't thinking meanly of yourself or lowly of yourself. Humility is when you don't think of yourself at all. That's what humility is. It, it's selflessness. C.J. Mahaney says, it's, it's honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. 
That's what biblical humility is. It is recognizing who God is and who we are such that it has an effect on our lives that make us not consider ourselves, but consider God first and everyone else instead of us. That's humility. And so Paul here begins this call to humility by by making a series of statements. Look with me now at verse number one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Now we've seen this in the book of Romans, this this particle if. In, In Greek it's just two little letters, I. We have seen in Romans that when it's used with an indicative verb, it, it does something to it. Everybody knows this, right? It becomes a first-class conditional clause, remember? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> You're like, no, we tune you out when you say those things, sir. Okay, got it. I think you'll remember this. When it's used that way, we should understand it to mean since instead of if. It's not just a possibility. So we could read this as, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Well, why doesn't Paul just write that? There's a word for since. He could have just written that instead of if. Why doesn't he just say since? Why does he say if? Why does he do it this way? Well, he's using a rhetorical approach. He's leading us down a path to come to the right conclusion. It's the way a trial lawyer does it with a witness, right? They ask a a series of questions that they know the answer to, to lead this witness to say the thing they want that witness to say. It's what a parent does when they're making a point with their child. You pose questions that can only be answered with the word yes. You're driving to a conclusion with your child, and you're hoping that your kid is making the connections as they're answering your questions instead of just outright telling them. So a parent might ask their young son something like this, do you care about your little sister's feelings? Yeah, I guess so. Do you think she would appreciate it if you would stop cutting the heads off of all of her dolls and pinning them to the wall? Yeah, I guess she would. Do you want her to be glad that you're her big brother? I suppose I do. Well, why don't you show her that you care about her by by not murdering her American Girl dolls anymore. What if you did that? What we're doing with our son is we're trying to bring him to that place of saying, my actions are not lining up with what I really want in my heart towards my sister, right? So Paul is doing this. He's using these if-then statements. If these things are true, and they are, then this is what ought to happen in light of that. So these four phrases are not possibilities, they're certainties. These are truths. These are things that are happening. If there really is encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there really is comfort from love in Christ, and there is, if there really is participation in the Spirit, and there is, 
If there is any affection and sympathy in him, and there is, well then, if all these things are true, and they are, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Why would Paul need to do this with this church? The, the church in Philippi was a great church. Why, why would he need to do this? Why would he need to tell them, you know what I want more than anything else? Do you, do you want to make me happy? Do you know how you could make me happy? Be unified in humility. Why would he need to say that? Well, it's because most New Testament scholars believe from things Paul writes later in this letter that this church had already begun to fracture. Division had already begun to come into this church. John MacArthur in his commentary says, The church at Philippi was for the most part theologically sound, devoted, moral, loving, zealous, courageous, prayerful, and generous, yet it faced the danger of discord that is often generated by only a few people. Such troublemakers can stir up the contention and strife that fractures an entire congregation. Although sound doctrine, moral purity, and a passionate commitment to the Lord and to his work are essential to a church's effective ministry, they alone cannot guarantee protection from discord. Thus Paul, thus Paul gently but firmly pleads with them to be diligently on guard against it. The church can have wonderful doctrine, be doing all kinds of glorious things, and a handful of people can stir up dissension that divides an entire church. And so Paul warns them and warns us to be unified in humility. He, he writes to them and writes to us, complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is the, this verb, being of the same mind is the main verb in this whole section of verses. In other words, all the other actions that are taking place in this passage are secondary to this. They're going to describe for us what it looks like to be of the same mind. If you want to complete my joy, be of the same mind, and then Paul's going to tell us what that looks like. He's going to describe that for us. And before we begin to look at these descriptions, which are actually commands for us, we need to know that these things are not natural. These things are not things we're going to just fall into and slide into. They're, they're not the kind of things that we're just going to do like breathing. It's just going to be the natural way that, that we live our lives. No, they're all unnatural. They, they don't come to us naturally. They are supernatural things. This call to humility is a supernatural call because it, 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 it opposes our flesh. It opposes our human nature. And so what, is, what does this call to humility look like? First, he says in verse 2, having the same love. Having the same love. He doesn't say that we all love the same things. We're told to have the same love. We have all Christians received love from the Father, through the Son, given to us by the Spirit, and we are commanded to demonstrate that love. To demonstrate that love in the way that we deal with one another. To demonstrate that love by living selflessly in unity with one another. And the kind of, of love Paul is using here, you, you're probably familiar with the New Testament's use of four different words for love. 
But the word that Paul uses here is a love that's volitional. In other words, it's, it's not seated in our feelings and our emotions. It's an act of the will. It's something we choose and it's something we do more than it is something we feel. Our feelings will follow that choice. Our feelings will follow those actions, but that's not where this love comes from. We've decided to love one another. No matter what we feel. Christian, do you realize that, that we have been made part of the same family? It's, it's even more true, it's doubly true, because we've been made part of this particular family, Maple Grove Church, this expression of, of the body of Christ. But we have been made into the family of Christ. We have been united to Christ, united to one another. We are actually going to live together forever. Think about that. So demonstrating humble, selfless love for one another is not optional. It's commanded by God for us. What does that mean? It means whoever that person is that you are frustrated with in the church, that person who gets under your skin and annoys you, you need to make a decision to love them and repent before the Lord for the bitterness you've had in your heart towards them. And as you do that, as you choose to love them and, and choose to, to do acts of love towards them, what's going to happen is your emotions are going to follow that. They may still drive you crazy, though. That could happen. Second, he says this, going on in verse 2, being in full accord. Being in full accord. Literally, this word means one-souled. It's only used right here in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used. Other translations say united in spirit. The, the, the root of our word symphony actually is based on, it actually comes from the prefix for this Greek word that Paul uses here. It's where we get the word symphony. So, so think of that harmonious sound that a symphony produces. Different talents, different instruments all combined together to make one beautiful harmonious sound. And now imagine going to the symphony and that trumpet player in the symphony who has decided, I'm going to play the song I want to play right now. And it's not this one. And he just starts playing some, you know, New Orleans jazz over top of Bach or whatever they're playing. It doesn't matter how talented he is, he's ruining the song. He may be the best trumpet player that has ever lived, he's ruining the song. Or, or imagine the one who plays the timpani, you know, those big brassy kettle drums. And he decides, I'm soloing in every song or I'm not playing. This is my role. It's a role I've decided. I'm a soloist. And he's just going to do it. What's going to happen? He's going to get fired instantly. It doesn't matter how good he is. You can't do that. You're destroying the harmony. You're destroying the unity of the symphony. Well, the church is a symphony. We're called to be in one accord, different people, different ages, different personalities, different backgrounds, different gifts combined together to serve one another in humility, each making our own contributions for the glory of God and the good of the church and the sake of the gospel of God's kingdom in the world. That's the command. A common love, a harmonious Unity, and then he says in verse 2, and of one mind. Literally, the same thing minding. We're minding the same thing. We have the same passion. 
And remember, Paul is just continuing his thought. These chapter and verses aren't in the text. Paul's writing a letter here, so the thought continues from what he was saying earlier. He just told us in verse 27 of chapter 1 to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. So our cooperative passion is supposed to be tied to that, tied to living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're called to a common passion, to, to live in such a way that we glorify God by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same thing we're all supposed to be minding, the same thing we're all supposed to be passionate about. And we consider the incarnate Christ's final command to the church. What is the final command of the incarnate Christ? Before ascending, the Lord commands his people, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Friends, that's why we exist. To glorify God through obedience to Christ and to take his saving gospel to the world. And one of the surest things that will rob us of the passion we are supposed to have for that, this passion that we are called to have for this glorious mission, one of the surest things to rob us of that is pride. If we're thinking about ourselves, it will distract us. It will rob us of our unity. It will rob us of our passion. If we are going to be faithful to this great command of Christ, it will require humility, and that does not come to us naturally. So what exactly does that look like? Paul tells us, look at verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what do we do? If this doesn't come naturally to us, what do we do to, to cultivate this in ourselves, to cultivate this humility that, that puts pride to death, that stokes the fires of this passion that we are supposed to have for the kingdom of God in this world? To grow this unity that we are to have with one another in the faith. Well, Paul says first, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's the first thing. Selfish ambition. This word in Paul's day meant one who jockeyed for position and power. They were motivated by self-love. That's selfish ambition. Selfishness is a consuming and destructive sin. It destroys, it deceives, it manipulates, it kills. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition. The second, from, from conceit, that's, that's vainglory. It's, it's, it's empty glory is what it is. It's, it's empty, meaningless, exaggerated self-importance. That's what vainglory is. That's what conceit is. And the truth is in the church, when these things are present, discord and division are inevitable. When the members of the church operate from a motivation of selfishness and conceit, it only brings destruction. It only brings division. Jonathan Edwards, one of, the, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, one of the greatest gifts that the Lord has, has given to the church, 
the church he pastored, the balcony collapsed, and it became a major ordeal for Edwards and the other leaders of the church. There was much conflict, much contention. Why, why is that? Well, it's because of this, because of how, how's the seating going to work out without our balcony? What are we going to do? In the 1700s, everyone sat in the same seat when they came to church. Not like today. <laughs> Not like us now. <laughs> Weird, indeed. I heard a story, by the way. Can we just take a mental health pause? Someone told me, it's been a year or two. I don't remember who told me, and they didn't, they didn't tell me who the person was. I'm sure they don't go here. But years and years ago, some visitors had come to this church and sat in their spot. And the people just stood over them and looked at them <laughs> until they awkwardly moved out of the way. That was years ago. I'm sure whoever that is is dead. It's fine. But if you ever do that, oh man, we're dropping the hammer. Uh, in the 1700s, they actually had assigned seats, though. That's why they always sat in the same place. You were assigned to seats, and the seats were arranged by how important you were, or at least how important you were perceived to be. And so the best seats were the padded seats. They were up in the front. That's where you wanted to be. Those, those pews, they only sat six to a pew, but once you got into the back and in the balcony, it was nine to a pew, and you were crammed in there. And so there was so much controversy after the balcony collapsed. What are we going to do about the seating? There was so much controversy that Edwards wrote about it in his journal, about the countless hours that he and the other church officials had to spend dealing with disgruntled members who were unhappy about their and other people's seating assignments in the worship service. Talk about a distraction from gospel mission. Are you kidding me? But that's what selfishness and conceit do. They take stupid things and they make them gigantic issues. Selfishness is the opposite of the humility that the gospel produces. We're missing something when we're selfish. There's something of the gospel that we are not understanding or taking to heart or applying to our lives. It destroys unity in the church of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, first of all, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How do we avoid selfish ambition and conceit? We count others more significant than ourselves. This word count means it's a settled conclusion. It's not a maybe. You know, I'm starting to think they might matter even as much as I do. No, 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 it's a settled thing. It means to actually consider others more important than yourself. What will enable us to do that? Because that's not how humans think. Put two babies in a room and one toy, and you'll find out both of them consider themselves far more important than the other one. It is natural to us. It's intrinsic to us because of the fall. What would enable us to do that? It's humility. Literally, what Paul says here is, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And, and the word is humility of mind. 
A, a lowly mind. Again, it doesn't mean that you think you're garbage. It means that you consider others and not yourself. You, you don't consider yourself. Your preferences don't even come into consideration because you care about other people more. You, you don't consider yourself superior or more important than anyone. You have settled it in your heart. You consider everyone else more important than yourself. It's a decision you've made. I will consider others to be more important to myself. And when my little natural voice pops up and goes, what about me and the things I want, then I'm going to tell it to shut up. I'm going to call it a liar and an enemy. Well, friends, I think you know that that's not natural. It's not natural to us to think that way. It's natural for us to elevate ourselves and our preferences. We, we don't come to this conclusion on our own. I should consider everyone else more important than myself. But how much conflict in the church would be totally eliminated? How many petty offenses? How many broken relationships? How much gossip? How much complaining would be avoided if we simply obeyed this one command? to stop thinking of ourselves and to consider others as more significant than we are. Oh, if only, brothers and sisters, we would all consider one another as more important than ourselves. Can you imagine the joy that would fill this place? Can you imagine the joy it would be to come together each week to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people who just think you're, you're so terribly important that they want to do anything they can to serve you. We can have that. We're commanded to be that way. This older woman tells, tells a story of her five-year-old grandson who'd been asked to be the ring bearer in a wedding. There was some concern as he was a spirited, energetic lad of exactly how things would go if he were to be the ring bearer in this wedding. Grandma was nervous he was going to make a scene of some kind. So she came up with a brilliant plan. The night before at the rehearsal, she says to him, I've decided to give a prize to the person who does the very best in this wedding. That person, whoever does the best in this wedding, that's the most important person in the whole wedding. And so they get a prize for being the most important person in the wedding. So the next day the wedding comes and his whole family's holding their breath, hoping that he won't do what our son did when he was a ring bearer in a wedding, which is midway down the aisle to start crying and run out the back. <laughs> but the little guy performed his role perfectly. He was an excellent ring bearer. And so during the reception, his grandma says to him, you won the prize. You did it. You were the best. He was so excited. He was the most important person in the entire wedding. And he said, I was pretty sure I was. I was pretty sure I was doing the best and I was the most important person. But then she came in wearing that white dress and everybody stood up and turned around and looked at her and I thought, oh no, she might win this. <laughs> Imagine being the least important person in the wedding. I mean, ring bearers don't usually even get to carry the rings. Sorry to any former ring bearers in the room. 
But due to his grandmother's genius, he thought the whole thing was all about him. Well, friends, that's great with a five-year-old in a wedding if it makes him behave. But how immature and silly are we when we think we're the most important person? When we arrogantly think our preferences must be obeyed. You must heed my wishes in the church. Finally then, verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This Greek verb, look to, it means to make this the aim of your life. Make this the aim of your life. It's, it's natural. It's easy for us to focus on ourselves at all times. It takes no effort. You don't have to burn any calories at all to think about your own interest all the time. But it's going to take supernatural humility if we're going to make others the aim of our lives. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on Philippians, says, Paul makes us face the question, why do I do what I'm doing in the church, in the home, at my workplace? Am I driven by self-centered motives even when I'm supposedly helping others? Am I self-serving even while I serve others, wanting and hoping to be noticed so that I will receive appreciation and recognition that I think I deserve? Whether I express it outwardly or not, do I nurse resentment when my hard work is ignored or my ideas are not followed? I read that and thought, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I think that describes us. People. The gospel effectively trains us. The Spirit of God produces in us th this kind of self-forgetful humility and self-sacrifice that Paul is calling us to. It's what the gospel is training us to do. It's what the gospel rightly understood should lead us to, to understand about ourselves. It's what the Spirit of God is working in us as, as we're being shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ, as we'll see next week, who is the, the paramount example of all of this. This is how we bring glory to Christ. This is how we walk in unity in the church. This is how we serve one another in brotherly love. This is how we cultivate a passion for gospel witness. It is humbly serving one another as an act of worship to Christ as we put pride to death in our own lives. This is how a watching world will look at us and know that we're Christians by our love. As we'll see next week, Paul's going to tell us that the ultimate embodiment of this call that we are called to is look at the incarnation of Christ. Look at Christmas. The call of Christmas is the call to humility. May it be, friends, that we answer that call by the grace of God. What joy it will bring. What, what fruit it will bear. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, we rejoice as we come into this season remembering the incarnation of Christ, our humble King, the one who, as we'll see Next week, emptied himself, humbled himself to take on human flesh. 
and the one who has been exalted and given the name that is above every other name, that name to which, before which every knee will bow and every tongue confess the lordship of Jesus Christ, the King. Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your saving gospel. We pray, Lord, that, that your gospel would produce in us by your spirit humility. Lord, that pride would be put to death, that we would be those who speak the truth boldly and do so in love. We would be those motivated by a passion for your glory in this earth. And that we would humbly love and serve one another, esteeming them greater than ourselves. Not, not as lip service, but as the fruit of transformed hearts in worship to you. Lord, we glory in you. We rejoice in you. We thank you for your saving grace and your power to save all who put their hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.